the first Easter declaration is that the tomb is empty. It's not really a hopeful word. Empty. Empty is that feeling when you grab your favorite breakfast cereal, tip it over, and it trickles crumbs. Because the eight-year-old doesn't inform you when it's empty. Empty is the house after the last child has moved out. Empty is the extra chair around the dining room table where someone used to sit. Empty. It's what you are when you have given life all the energy, all the effort, all the hope you have, and tomorrow is still coming with new challenges. An empty home, an empty fridge, an empty chair. The first Easter declaration, the tomb is empty. John's Gospel tells us that Mary was the first one to find the empty. She went expecting a corpse. Mary had watched Jesus die, and she came to wash away the dirt and the gore and to perfume him, to honor him. But the tomb is empty. She doesn't think, ah, he's been resurrected. She thinks, someone has stolen his body. And she runs and tells the other disciples, two of whom take off running to the tomb, and they run into it, and it's empty, and they're not sure what it means. There isn't a note. It's just empty. There's no corpse, but there's no risen Lord. It's not defeat, but it's not victory. It's just empty. So they go home. They just go home, confused. It's a comfort, because that's often where we find ourselves on Easter morning. Looking at an empty tomb, unsure of what it means, wondering what kind of promise an empty tomb holds for us. If I lose my job, is an empty tomb going to feed my family or pay my mortgage? Is the empty tomb going to secure my kid a future? Is the empty tomb going to find me friends or give purpose to my day? Is it going to heal this broken body or mend this broken heart? Jesus did miracles, but what good is an empty tomb? And the disciples were wondering the same question, talking together about the mystery later that night. They had hidden away and locked the door because they didn't understand. Something had happened, but they didn't know what. And then Jesus is suddenly just standing in the middle of the room. He just appears, like he does in our lives with a moment of healing or insight or comfort, appears bringing peace, and then just like that, is gone. And it's the ten of them standing there together, the ten disciples, and suddenly the room feels empty. What does it mean when a dead guy appears in your house? What does it mean when God flashes into our lives and then is gone again, leaving the empty? What do we do with empty? What do we do with empty? This morning, here again with fresh ears, the mystery of Easter from John chapter 20. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord! But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, 
His disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. When Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, he is speaking about us. We're with Thomas as the other disciples run up to him. Did you hear? The tomb is empty. Did you hear? Jesus is raised. We have seen the Lord. We weren't there. They get back to the room and talking over each other. They show Thomas the spot where Jesus was standing right here. This is the spot he was standing here. Can you believe it? But now the spot is empty. Can you believe it? It's hard. It's hard. He hears what they're saying. He can see their excitement. But for him, it's not enough. All he sees is an empty room, an empty tomb. And what difference is empty going to make for his life? Will empty pay bills or cook dinner or run the carpool? He's already got empty. We've already got empty. Empty bank accounts, homes that feel empty, futures that look empty. We've gotten empty promises that have left us with broken hearts. Empty words that taught us not to trust. The feeling when you find yourself wondering, what's, what's it all mean? What does it matter? What have I really accomplished that makes a difference? And suddenly all the busyness just feels empty. Empty isn't a hopeful word. We've got enough empty. So we, we race to fill the empty sports after school and then homework, fill the gaps in with friends, and then scroll through Instagram and catch up on snaps until sleep. Amen from the front row. <laughs> For the rest, work, then carpool, then chores, then projects, fill the fridge, and then the pantry, and then the weekends, fill the holes in our hearts with someone. And anyone is better than empty, so just someone is fine. Nothing empty. Turn the TV on and leave it on just to avoid the empty and set Netflix to repeat so it will stop asking you if you're still watching and replace your last project with a new project. And when you're sitting in the doctor's office or the line at Walmart, pull out the smartphone to avoid the empty or even grab a magazine because anything is better than empty. Just not empty. When I was about nine years old, I lived in the distant north of Minnesota. Our house was across the street from this big wooded area, a sharp, sleep, sloping hill dipping down to a creek at the bottom. And my friends and I loved to climb those towering oaks and pines. And the hill was so steep, you'd have to catch yourself on the trees as you went down. Or I'd like to ride my bike along the roads, along the woods, down to Ruth Street, which cut down that hill through, through the woods until it came to a bridge over the creek. It's the kind of hill where you drive down it just using your brakes. 
So teetering my bike, I turned the corner, and I'd pedal as long as I could until the wind was whipping so fast, and the front wheel of the bike starts wobbling a little, and it's all you can do to keep from losing control and spilling over. And then I'd coast faster and faster until the fear took over. And I'd break a little to keep from crashing as I'd coast to the bottom. At 30, I would call that fear uh, intelligence. <laughs> but at nine, it made me ashamed. I felt constricted. I wanted to live fearless and free, so I'd do that hill again and again, trying to push myself further every time the wind would whip and the tire would wobble, and my fear would take over again, and breaking as I coasted to the bottom, I'd feel ashamed. Except once. Once I pushed my bike back up the hill, turned around, started pedaling, leaning low, and the wind is whipping, leaned lower, and the tire wobbled, and I gritted my teeth, eyes watering, tire wobbling, gripping so hard my whole body ached, I refused to brake faster and faster, the tire wobbling more and more, until it whipped to the left, straight into the street, and I jerked it back to the right too hard, and suddenly the world was upside down. And I was surreally, surreally staring at the sky as my bike and I somersaulted. I don't know the sequence which with, with which things hit the ground, but I know the bike and I skidded to a stop, my knee dragging on the concrete until it tore a hole in my jeans, which did not stop the bike. Instead, my knee continued dragging on the concrete, and I was unable to do anything as it ripped the skin underneath. I don't remember walking home, but I remember my mom hugging me and taking me to the bathroom. And I remember pulling up my, the leg of my pants and seeing my tall white stock stained with a disturbing amount of blood. And I remember the pain as she picked gravel out of my knee. And I kept asking her to stop because it hurts so bad. Just put a band-aid on it and it will be fine. <laughs> But using a tweezer to pick little rocks out of the skin, she insisted that it had to be empty first. And I kept telling her how horrible she was as she pushed in again and again, every one insisting that it had to be empty first. First, the wound needs to be empty before healing empty comes first. Before you plant a crop or a garden, I've been told by those who do such things, first you take the time to clear the weeds and the rocks that will keep the new plants from growing well. Empty comes first. Before you start a new pot of coffee, you throw out the old coffee grounds and empty the pot. Before a family moves into their new house, the old family needs to move out. Empty comes first. The tomb isn't empty because God gave up or ran out. The tomb is empty because empty comes first. It's where the healing begins. It's where new life begins. It all begins with empty. Empty is the first Easter proclamation because God cannot work without empty. God will not fill things that are already full. Easter begins with the empty tomb because God works in the empty. And it's why Thomas wanted to see the wounds. He didn't say his face. I want to see the wounds. 
I want to put my fingers in the wounds. It's the hardest part of our faith to believe. We can find a way to believe in resurrection. We can believe that God will forgive us and bless us and fill us with life. But why does empty have to come first? Why does the cross have to come first? Why does the tomb have to come first? It's so empty. It's the hardest part. Because if it's true, then to receive life, to receive God, to receive Easter morning, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost a lot. We'll have to follow Christ to our own cross and to our own tombs, not metaphorically, but actually sacrifice our desires and our time, our habits and our routines and our plans will have to be empty. So Thomas wants to see, to see that God can do something with the empty. That God can even do something with the suffering. Can God really do something even with death? Even with cancer? Even with shattered hearts? Even with abandoned dreams? Even with empty bank accounts and empty homes? And the empty that's so deep there aren't words. You just groan empty. Can God do something with that? Even with that? Eight days. Eight days, Thomas waits. Eight days of hoping against hope, of feeling crazy for expecting a dead guy to show up somehow alive. Eight days. And then Jesus appears. Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand here in my side. It's real. Even if you empty yourself to death, even if you suffer as I did, even if the world unloads upon you everything it can, even then God can still fill you with life. And Thomas sees and he understands. He understands that God calls us into emptiness because before you can heal a wound, first you clean, empty, comes first. Before you plant first, you clear the field. Before a new life forgiven and washed clean. Before we can be filled to the brim. Filled beyond understanding with the presence of God. Filled with resurrection and hope and courage and joy. Before all of those promises of faith, first comes the empty. And you can't go around it. You can only go through it. Only by the power of God. Empty is the most hopeful word we have. Some days ago, one Jesus of Nazareth emptied himself. Poured himself out in love for us and for this world. Poured out his life. As his body was broken, he poured out his blood. Until he poured out his last breath. And he was empty. And they stabbed him as he hung on the cross, but he was already empty, he was dead. Nothing left, no energy or will or power or creativity, not a thing to save himself, not even a heartbeat. And they laid him in a tomb, it's where you put someone when they're empty. But our God works in the empty. So Jesus only borrowed that tomb for three days. When Mary found that tomb, it wasn't empty like a cereal box that's run out. 
It was empty like a balloon that's been filled too full. It just couldn't contain it anymore. And it... Because God poured Himself, poured in His Spirit until the air in the tomb started to vibrate, until the ground began to shake, until the stones started to creak with the pressure, pushing in more and more, until Jesus' body that had been cold for three days, empty for three days, burst into life with laughter. And that boulder that had closed him in shot off like a ping pong ball and God's spirit was unleashed into the world like a hurricane. The tomb isn't just empty. It's broken. It's overwhelmed. It's overflowing with the spirit and it's bringing joy and healing and hope and peace. Can you feel it? In the silence, can you feel it? Almost vibrating, can you feel it? It's here. It's here. In the emptiness we bring, it's here. It's waiting. Empty. It's good news. The empty tomb, it's good news. Your empty is good news. Our God works in the empty. Brothers and sisters, our God works in the empty. Let us pray. Lord God, this morning we confess to you again how urgently we fill the empty. Avoiding thinking about the things, avoiding pausing, avoiding stopping, trying to fill our lives, trying to guarantee our own futures. But this morning we pause. This morning we confess to you the empty. We offer you our empty. And we ask that you do what only you can do, that you would fill it with the Spirit, and from death, that you would bring life. We pray this in the name of the risen Lord. Amen.